0: Thanks, Kevin, Jill, and Kaylee. Just really appreciate you guys and your friendship, but also the music. Thanks for that. Our uh, scripture reader for this morning is out of town, and the backup is out of town. (laughs) So so I will be reading the passage this morning, and we'll be looking at somewhat as we continue our... um, our series on hope. Um, my plan is that we, at the next few Sundays, we'll be looking at uh, a new, a new uh, sort of subgroup about how to deal with the past and uh, embracing hope and surrendering our past is what I'm calling just the next few Sundays. And then we'll end up the series talking about our ultimate hope, which is usually what a lot of people think of when they think about the Christian hope, and uh, that is the return of Christ and his restoration of the creation. But uh, we're going to be looking, uh, starting today, about dealing with our past and, and how do we do that hope. And I think one of the best stories about that is the story of Joseph. And we'll be looking at it a little bit later on. But I'm going to read just the, some of the conclusion. Actually, it keeps going on a few more chapters with Joseph. But um, this is uh, when they come and kind of reunite reun- and have a reunion with his brothers. And we'll look at the story a little bit later. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Joseph was no longer able to control himself before all his attendants, so he cried out, "'Make everyone go out of my presence.' No one remained with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept loudly. The Egyptians heard it, and Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, "'I am Joseph.'" Is my father still alive? And his brothers could not answer him because they were dumbfounded before him. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. So they came near. And then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery, into Egypt. Now, do not be upset and do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For these past two years there has been a famine in the land, and for five more years there will be neither plowing nor harvesting, and God sent me ahead of you to preserve you on the earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it is not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me an advisor to Pharaoh, lord over all of his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now go up to my father quickly and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. You will live in the land of Goshen, and you will be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and everything you have. I will provide you with food there, because there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you would become poor. You, your household, and everyone who belongs to you. You and my brother Benjamin can certainly see with your own eyes, that I really am the one who speaks to you. So tell my father about my honor in Egypt and about everything you have seen, but bring my father down here quickly. And then he threw himself on the neck of his brother Benjamin, and they wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers, and he wept over them. And after this, his brothers began to talk with him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that uh, you have called us to be your children, and on this Father's Day, we recognize our father, our earthly fathers, and just the sacrifices they gave for us. We also recognize that there are people who have uh, painful memories about their father, or loss of one, or one that uh, was not the good father that he needed to be. But Father, we thank you for you, our Heavenly Father, who cares for us, whose mercies are new every single morning. And so, Father, we are asking that you renew us this morning, that you hold us into your hand and know that we will be in the safest place there is in the universe, and that is in your arms. So, Father, we give the time to you as we look at what you have for us. And Father, we, we, we admit that we know in our heads that you love us, but we go days, weeks, months without even contemplating that, without feeling it, without experiencing it. But Father, this morning we want to experience it. We want to experience it in, the, in, the, in your word, in the music, and also as we share the Lord's Supper. So Father, be with us this morning. Change us. Fill our hearts full of joy and hope. And In Jesus' name, Amen. When uh, when Sue first met my family, she was pretty um, awestruck. I'll, I'll say it that way uh, of how we talked, and uh, not not just our accent. I remember when I remember when my um, we had this thing going on at my mom's house, and my nephew was I have a nephew that's the same age as my daughter, and he came to Sue and goes, "Ain't Sue? Ain't Sue? Can you get the box out of the truck?" And so she goes over there and she says, what box? There's no box in there. The box, the box. And he's going, there's no box. No, the box. And then she looked at it and she goes, oh, the bikes. Why didn't you say bikes? (laughs) But it's not just the accent. It's also some of those those expressions that we have. She says, in Iowa, we press buttons. We don't mash them. We're not that violent to mash the button. Can you mash that button for me? And, um, yeah, so... um, I remember my brother also said, we were talking about having to go to the grocery store. My brother says, well, well I'll carry you to the store. Do I hop on your back or what? How's this going to work here? Why can't we just drive to the store? You don't need to carry me. I'm not an invalid. But another one is we were talking, I remember in, our room, in, the, in the living room, and, and uh, my mom and grandmother were there, and she says, well, well what are you going to make when you get out of college? What are you going to make when you grow up? And that just like, baffled Sue. It was like, what are you going to make? I said, that's how we say, what are you going to be when you grow up? What are you going to be when you grow up? But that's the question. is What are you going to make when you get out of school? Well, I'm going to make a teacher. You know? I remember my niece was saying that. I'm going to make a teacher. I know English real good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she literally said that, didn't she? <laughs> so what are you going to make? You know, so say, well, I'm going to make a farmer. My, ma- my grandmother would say, oh, no, you don't, you don't want to make a, father, a farmer like Paw. You know, she grew up on the cotton farm and married a cotton farmer. Says so it's too hot. You don't want to be a farmer. And I remember my aunts and uncles used to ask, my brother and I, uh, used to ask my brother and me, um, are you going to make a preacher like, like Big Daddy? And we'd say, no, I'm not going to make a preacher like Big Daddy. <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it was programmed in my head back then. But when we think about that, those dreams of what, what are you going to make when you grow up, and you you got to have that, that open, that blank slate, you know, you're going to look at. you got these dreams, and you think, okay, I'm going to meet the perfect person, you know, and we're going to have this, this right number of kids, and they're all going to be healthy. I will have this fulfilling career, this fulfilling job. And we know what we want to do when we grow up. And, but even as we get older, we have that same question sometimes about what do you want to make when you get older? You know, what are you going to be? And, and sometimes it's kind of comforting if you could say, boy, if I could just wipe the slate clean. And, and start over, what would I do differently? And you think that would be kind of a, a great thing. And the thing is that we think about what we could have been, what we could have made, what we could have done. And even when we're at this age, and we just celebrated graduation last week, and you're at this age, what are you gonna make when you get out of school? And you got all these things ahead of you, and there always seems to be one thing that gets in the way, and that's our past. We carry these things with us all the time, and it affects our decisions. It affects the way we we treat people. It affects the way we relate to each other. It gives us. It gives us. Uh, we may be carrying anxiousness, or bitterness, or anger, or disappointment, or frustration. And if you want to know kind of the best predictor for the future, is probably your past, because we will probably continue to do in the future what we've done in the past, unless. We get transformed. That is the only hope. If we can get transformed, if we can find a way to make friends somehow, to befriend our enemies that are inside, to befriend and recognize the anger, the anxiousness, the being driven, the shame, the lustful heart, the guilt, the regret. And we recognize those and we somehow embrace those things because we need healing. And those things get converted, converted into a deeper way of loving God and a deeper way of loving others, and it produces hope. And that's where the hope comes from. And I believe Joseph is about the best picture we can find in the Bible. The Bible is full of people who have reached this point of hopelessness, and yet they, as Hebrews puts it, they go on hoping on in faith in spite of it all. And if anybody could meet that requirement, it's Joseph, who had reached this point of hopelessness, but he goes on hoping in faith. And he was somehow able to transform that pain. And that's what we're going to be looking at the next few, and we're going to be a little bit more specific in in the coming weeks. Today, we're just going to look at the broad picture. But so much we carry on inside of us that it just haunts us. And where our past doesn't become the past, it stays in the present. So if you've got this past, these things that, that, that happened to you, the things that were said to you, or the things that you said, or the things that you had done, and these things you carry with them in the present, they're not the past, they're the present. Because you're carrying them with you. And it doesn't do us any good. And we have to choose about that. We have to choose how to, we're going to heal with that. My daughter says... Uh, she, she sees this and observes this in real time because she's, she's in charge of, I think, 75 or 80 boys in her house at school as well as being a teacher. And she goes, I see this happening in real time, these kids building these memories, these pasts, that they will carry with them the rest of their life. And we were actually just happened to eat pizza when we when, when at this pizza place in, in, uh, in England. And she says to me, you know, the server goes away, she says to us, our server has been harming herself." And I go, how did you know that? He goes, you learned to recognize the signs. And where she knew it, and then and she came back, and sure enough, she had some bandages on her arms, you know, on her wrist and things. And we go, yeah, she has. And what people carry in their past just keeps us from hoping. It cripples us. It cripples us from, from being able to hope. So we're going to look at this morning, Embrace Hope, Surrender the Past, and that's what we'll be doing in the next couple of weeks. And our past has a way of crippling hope because we don't experience a transformative God. We, we, have, this idea that we have this idea of the gospel in the last, last couple of centuries that it's just one thing that, um, that God's just. And he must punish sins, but Christ came to pay for our sins, and therefore declare and then imputes our right, his righteousness on us, and therefore we are declared righteous, and we uh, live eternity with him. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that's incomplete. It doesn't cover the whole. doesn't cover the whole gospel message, because the past these these things that these enemies that we carry with us. And that produced this anger and bitterness and anxiousness, this is what Jesus came us to save us from. He came us to give us life and life abundantly. And the way he does that is deal with these things. He is able to transform those things. He's our, our our injuries and our scars become sacred injuries and sacred scars. And God transforms us. This is all part of the package of the gospel. I mean, if it was just that, if it was just you know being justified then all we need are those last three days of Jesus' life but we have a whole gospel messages and four books and the New Testament that tell us beyond that that it's abundant life and he can transform those things and what I'm saying is we need to experience this transformative God now or we're going to be walking around injured for the rest of our life and it'll affect our relationships it'll affect everything about us so I cannot control what happens to me, but I can control what happens in me. And that's what we're gonna be looking at in the next few weeks. What do, what do we do to have this transformation in me? I can control that. And the first thing we gotta do is we got to choose transformation. We have to choose to do this and not just go on as life as it is. And, and our past, because our fa- past affects every decision, every word, every relationship, It affects everything because our past doesn't remain in the past, it it becomes in the future. And I'm not saying that to make excuses, you know, the the psychological excuses, well, I do this, but if you knew my mother, you would know why I did that. Those are just excuses. We are responsible for our decisions and we can do it, but the problem is that we keep replaying this tape over and over and over in our heads of what was said to me, what was done to me what I experienced, what I said, what I did, and we just keep playing it over and over and over again. We, we carry that secret in our heart that no one else knows. We had this broken marriage, or I experienced sexual abuse as a child, the miscarriages we experienced, the divorce that caught me off guard, the bully that made my life miserable, a hypercritical um, demanding parent, demanding father, uh, all these things that happen to you, these hurt words and decisions, and then they're, they just stay as open wounds if we don't recognize it. But we have a God who transforms us, and what we do oftentimes without God, without the Lord, and Christians do this as well as people inside the churches, outside the church, we opt out of hope. We opt out of hope because we find other ways to deal with it. The zealot. I'm just going to mention a few, uh, four of them, that the way we normally handle these past. These past injuries. The zealot is the person who finds people to fight. And these are people who, who, who just say they, they are, you know, they're, they're wrong, they're in, and I need, an, I need somebody to hate, I need an evil, I need an enemy to blame, I need somebody to look at uh, to say that, that you are the blame, you are the one, and if I can get rid of you, then I can live in peace. And so they want to fight it. And, and Jesus says that some people will even kill thinking that they're doing God a favor. And so we do that, too. We go and fight for it. We fight against it. We find somebody else who is worse than us, and we, we fight them and blame them. The second is similar, is that we play the victim. And we say, oh, I do this because of, because, because of my mother or because of my father, and I'm just a victim. And so we put people in buckets of the worthy buckets and the unworthy buckets. And, of course, the victim is in the worthy bucket, and all those people are unworthy over there. And that is... That is comforting, but it's a false sense of moral superiority, and it's just not true. So you can be the victim and think that you're totally innocent, but let me tell you this morning, you are not. We can play the victim, but it's just not true. We can be the denier. I'm not saying there's no victims, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we are not innocent either, that we take responsibility. Then there's the denier, that there's nothing wrong, everything's fine, I'm okay, don't worry, I'm just, there's nothing, nothing I need to worry about, and we hide those things, we hide those secrets, we hide those offenses, we hide those words, and just deny and go on and say, everything's fine, everything's fine, I'm not gonna mess with it. And then finally, there's the, well, I think there is, the worm. That is the opposite, that's the one that says, oh. I am not worthy. I am just horrible. I don't deserve anything good. I am just—I deserve this abusive husband. I deserve this this uh, I deserve this, this, uh, uh, this lousy job. This terrible boss. I don't. I don't. Can't ask for anything because I am not worthy. And I would guess a lot of Christians fall into the worm category. Uh, We—if you've grown up in the church, you probably have heard a very healthy doctrine of total depravity. Uh, That basically says, you are worthless, you're not worth anything, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, etc. And where you're just, where you end up believing that I am nothing. And I have no boundaries, I have no right to express boundaries, I have no right. But that's not gospel either. God didn't die for the worm. He died because he loves you. And you're worthy. And of course, there's all this, there's a question of whether you, you know, we are worthy in and of themselves, or are we made worthy by God's love? Maybe it's both, I don't know. But the point is, you're not a worm. God didn't die for somebody worthless. We have value, we have dignity, and so does the person next to you. Value and dignity. And so we opt for these alternatives, but we have to change the tape. We have to change the tape of what's going on inside of us. Uh, I've been using this book called Hope Rising by Casey Gwynn and, and uh, Chan Hellman. And they're, they're two professionals who have discovered the power of hope. And uh, he's even written a book. He's the guy that's, that was at the University of Oklahoma that I mentioned. And remember he talked about, I put this chart up before, he talked about having desirable goals, and what we need to reach those goals are pathways, ways to reach there, and then intentionality, the ability, the willpower to, to do the things that are necessary. And even with the path that we're taking, we can change our goals, we can make reachable goals and we can find pathways, as Joseph did, to come over, to overcome those and then have the willpower to do it. And I mentioned before when I first started the book, when I first bought it, I wasn't sure where they, were, where they were coming from spiritually. I really didn't know. But then they have a chapter in there called "Spiritual Hope and Spirituality where they come clean. And they come out and say, yes, we are believers, we are Christians, and we, um, we are men of faith. They try to meet, with all, they try to meet the needs of all the, all the readers, but they're very clear where they are. And he said, basically, as Christians... We have, will, we have a goal, we have the pathways, we have the will, but the difference is we leave the results to God. And God can do the impossible. That God welcomes everyone because no one is perfect. And we can reach those goals. And just a couple of quotes. They came to this conclusion. He said the research, this isn't just Bible, the research around religious and spiritual coping shows strong and convincing relationships between psychological adjustment and physical health following trauma spirituality provides a belief system and a sense of divine connectedness that helps give meaning to the traumatic experience and has been shown over and over to aid in the recovery process this is from his own study this is from his own research one of the psychologists at the University of California, I would say it, but I cannot pronounce her name. Libu Mursky, maybe? Uh, she says, we can no longer ignore the powerful influences of spirituality and religion on health and well-being. If nothing else, the statistics should compel them, not make them optional. I put that up there just to say that we're on solid ground here. This isn't just this thing we say in the church because we're supposed to say it. That God's stuff really works, that God's word really does function, and the promises do hold. And so the, the Bible is full of people who have reasons to lose hope, but they hoped on in faith. And Joseph is the prime example. Most of you probably know the story. Uh, he's the youngest of twelve brothers, and he was also the favor of the father, favorite of the father. And so all the brothers were jealous of him. And granted, Joseph probably didn't help his cause too much because he was a little bit, he kind of liked to, to, to remind them that he was the favorite. And they were so angry with him. One time they were out with the sheep and, and doing their work. They decided, well, they are just going to kill Joseph. And Reuben, Reuben didn't want that. He, he, he was against that. He said, well, let's, let's throw him in the pit and just let him die. And then he was hoping to come back and save him. Well, that's what they did. They threw him in the pit. They beat him up, threw him in the pit. And they were all talking about killing them, and they didn't know whether to kill them or not. And I can imagine Joseph in the bottom of that pit looking up at his brothers after he's been beaten and bruised and them laughing at him. And I think when, when we tell somebody we love them, and you know Sue and I will tell each other we love you, and we feel it, yeah, we feel it. But sometimes it's not all that strong. We just kind of acknowledge it. But when somebody tells you they don't love you or they've stopped loving you, man that just drains the life out of you doesn't it and that's just that's what i feel like joseph is seeing and feeling at this point he's sitting there looking up and the brothers are laughing at him and then there's a train of train of ismaelites coming by and they say let's don't kill him let's make some money off of him let's sell him as a slave so they sell him as a slave and they take him to egypt And he gets accused of, he gets falsely accused of rape, so he gets thrown in jail. And I know Joseph is thinking, why is all this injustice happening to me? What is wrong with me? What have I done? And I can imagine he would be totally hopeless. But he kept on, hoping on in faith. And he had a goal, and he had pathways, and he acted. He didn't just sit there, he took action, and God blessed him, and God raised him up to be second in command in all of Egypt. And he takes this pain, and he takes this hurt, and he doesn't let the enemy take it over. What does he do? He takes it, and he forgives. He lets it go. And there's incredible healing that takes place, not to mention saving his family from a famine. That's just a wonderful picture of what a man does when he takes the hurt and he takes the pain and he takes his past and those things become sacred scars and he gets healed and he still admits what you did was wrong but God used it to save you. What you did was horrible but I forgive you and he kissed them. And he hugged on them. And they go get the father and they come back. I mean, what a great picture of how to handle the past. It doesn't mean you erase it. It doesn't mean you feel sorry for yourself playing the victim. It doesn't mean, mean that Joseph didn't call the soldiers in of Egypt and say, wipe them all out. Because they're evil. He wasn't a worm. He dealt with it. God healed him. He forgave. And there's restoration. They transformed him. The past was transforming. So, my point this morning is that God is bigger than our history. God is bigger than your history. He is bigger than your history, but He cares more about your destiny. He is bigger than your history, but He cares most about your destiny. Where are you going to go from here? That's what He's concerned about. And, and we know that, that Jeremiah tells us that his mercies are new every morning and that's a nice song that we sing and, and sometimes that just kind of goes in one ear and out the other for me. But then if I think about it, every morning when I wake up, that mercy's new. And however I screwed up yesterday, it's forgiven, it's gone, I can deal with it, and I need to move on. My particular way of opting out of Hope, uh, the other way, is the worm approach, where I keep playing those tapes over and over and over in my head. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? I am such a jerk. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. And I play it over and over and over again. But Jeremiah tells us the mercies are new every single morning. and we need to be healed of that. Healthy Christian spirituality knows that. Healthy Christian spirituality knows that the pain, the absurd suffering, the tragic, the, the, the nonsensical things that happen to us, the unjust things that happen to us, they need to be transformed. Uh, the Franciscan monk Richard Rohrer is, is, is famous for saying that we have to let our pain be transformed or we will transmit it. And that is so true. If we don't get healed of that, if we don't get healed of our past, if we don't get healed and get transformed with those things, we will transmit it. And the worst thing is we will transmit it to the next generation. And I know Katie is carrying scars from my pain, from my frustrations. We will transmit it somehow. So we must find some way for God to restore it, for God to heal it. To identify those wounds, know what they are, and build something new out of it, just like he did with Joseph, that no one is too broken to be used by God. No one is too far gone to be used by God, that we can be transformed inside so that we can stop playing the victim and stop making victims of other people. We can do that, and God can do it. And we can become conduits of grace instead of hurt and anger and anxiousness and bitterness and secrets and unforgiveness. I didn't want to leave you completely without something practical this time. We will look more in the specifics later on, but I do want to do some things, some invitations to embrace hope. God invites us, to focus more on fruitfulness than accomplishments. That's focus on fruitfulness and not just the accomplishments, not just the productivity. I mean, that's all fine and good, but I think God's more concerned about our fruit than anything else. And I think that applies to, uh, let me say, us over the age of 50. Because we kind of get slowing down and we want to be more productive, we want to accomplish God invites us to talk, talk about fruitfulness, not just, the, not just the, the, the accomplishments. And many of you have accomplished great things and many, many things in your jobs, raising a family, uh, um, ministry, you've accomplished great things, and that's all wonderful, wonderful. But God is inviting us to focus on the fruit. God invites us to notice the Spirit's work in our inner being, what is going on inside. In other words, note the emotions. Take the time at night, just 10 minutes at night, and say, God, I confess these sins to you from today. God, I want to look at where I noticed you today. Where did I see you this morning and this afternoon? Walk through your day, morning, noon, and evening. And notice those emotions. Notice those, those things you felt. Notice what was going on in your life. Notice what was what was um, the events of the day. When did you feel close to God? When did you feel distant from God? Notice what the Spirit is doing in your inner life. God invites us to experience the scriptures in new ways. I mean, I'm reading stuff now that I, I thought I had down pat. And then God shows me something new, a new insight, a new application. I, I've been working through John, and I just now, now I'm chapter 21. And it's amazing how things jump out at me about the resurrection story. I mean, how many times have I preached an Easter, an Easter sermon? And I've been in this, what, 37, 38 years now? How many times have I done that? And looking at this, just this, this encounter with Thomas was just amazing. And just that idea of the idea of, of, of he believed because he saw. And then blessed are those who don't see us, and we believe. I mean, we are favored people. God invites us to find grace in the losses. The things that we have lost, the things that, we, that have gotten away from us, our weaknesses. In fact, the Bible even says that, 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 uh, we are, that God is more glorified in our weaknesses. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount basically says, you're blessed if you lose everything because the kingdom of God is here for the finding. It's here to be found. So he finds grace in the losses. God invites us to put down our burdens that we have carried with us for way too long. And I don't know what burdens you're carrying, but he is asking us to put it down that we've been carrying this for way too long. In Isaiah... Isaiah 46, he talks about the, the, um, the Israelites were, were, bearing, were beaten down by carrying these gold idols around, just carrying them around. And now God is saying, you can let those go, drop them. And granted, we are not carrying gold idols around, but we're carrying other idols around. We're carrying idols around like entitlements, uh, our rights. We're carrying um, uh, our expectations around. Does it really matter that you're not in charge? Does it really matter that much that you may not be in charge? Does it really matter that much? Is it that terrible that your children make different decisions than you would have made? Is it that terrible? What about the stuff we hold on to? The possessions we hold on to? The status we hold on to? Our reputation that we hold on to? The ambitions? Just drop the idol and you'll be a lot lighter. He goes on to say, which these verses have taken a deeper meaning to me lately, even when you are old, (laughs) he says, uh, listen to me, O family of Judah, all you who are left from the family of Israel, you who have been carried from birth, you who have been supported from the time you left the womb, even when you are old, I will take care of you. Even when you are gray hair, I will carry you. I made you. I will support you, I will carry you, and I will rescue you." That's the promise. Let the burdens go, let them down, and we seek transformation. And we'll seek it together over the next couple of weeks. We're going to celebrate communion. Um, The Easter story is a um, three-day story. The third day seems to be God's day, if you look through the scriptures. Uh, the third day was when Moses presented the Ten Commandments. He said in the third day he will do that. Uh, the third day is when young girls like Esther confront a king. Uh, the third day is when uh, prophets like Jonah land on the shore, spit up by a big fish, uh, Nineveh. The third day is when the stone is rolled away. Uh, the third day is a reminder that God does his best work in the hopeless situation. So we worship God who uh, specializes in the resurrection. Uh, he specializes in hopeless situations. Uh, he conquered death so that we could have life. And Jesus saw that, uh, that, that him risen changed everything. When he met those disciples on Emmaus, what did they say? We are hopeless. We were hoping that this king was going to free us from the yoke of slavery and then, when Jesus opened the word and broke bread with them, their eyes opened. And it changed everything. And we look at these stories and, and we say, oh, well, good for them, good for Thomas, good for the, the disciples, good in the, on Emmaus. Well, no, um, good for us, good for me, good for you. The resurrection changed everything, it changed the world, it changed history. And it changed me. I can have hope in the midst of crisis, even when I'm obsessed with my past. Even when I think there's no obvious reason to have hope, I can still have hope. Because my hope is based on the God who can and do the impossible. My hope is based on the God who raises the dead. And that can heal. And that can change. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is working in you and me this morning. The exact same power. Um, All the past that has followed you around, all the anger, the bitterness, the anxiety, the self-hatred, the resentment, you don't have the power to fix it. But the God who raises the dead does. He is able to do that. We can't resurrect anything, but God can. And the resurrection announces that he's not given up on us. So we're going to celebrate communion, and I'm going to say a prayer, and I'm going to invite you to pray it with me. I'll just pray it in phrases, and um, I'm just going to ask you to pray it silently uh, so nobody feels awkward or anything, but I'll pray it in in, uh, phrases and ask you to pray with me. Lord God, at this moment, I am hopeful. I am hopeful because my trust is in you. I am hopeful because you are the God who raises the dead. Amen. When we take communion this morning, we are announcing that God hasn't given up on us. Uh, He hasn't given up on you and he hasn't given up on me. In fact, he's making all things new. And so I'm gonna invite you this morning to, to take communion with us. And as you take the bread and the cup, you are announcing to the world that God has not given up on me. He has not given up on me. He has not given up on you. He is the God who raises the dead.